Good morning. Welcome to Oak Ridge Community Church. My name is Dave Ferguson. I'm one of the pastors here. And we are going to continue with our biblical review in 2 Samuel. Last week, the major theme was having a heart, a soft heart that listens to God. And we ended with the death in battle of Saul and his sons. So today as we continue, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute, what's this? Pop quiz. Pop quiz. We're going to see how much you guys have been paying attention here over the last several weeks. You'll notice on your note sheet at the very top is a, a slide that we cover frequently. And uh, I don't mind repeating this week after week because I think this is part of the reason we're doing this study and this biblical review is I want to go through here and I want you guys to help me fill in the blanks. Can, can someone help me fill in the blanks? The purpose of Scripture. The purpose of Scripture. Look at the little red question mark there. What is one of the purposes of Scripture? Who remembers that from our past exhortations? To reveal God. Excellent. Fill in the blank. Great job. What is another one of the purposes of Scripture? It points to Jesus. Nice and loud. Excellent. Thank you very much. That's the purpose of Scripture. Now, our purpose, our purpose, especially in regards to this study, someone else, nice and loud. What's one of our purposes for participating in this study? Amen. Increase biblical literacy. Thank you, Bruce. Sincerely appreciate that. And last but not least, the little red question mark that goes with the little red heart. What is another one of our purposes? Increase our obedience. Yes. Thank you, Brian. Respond in faith and obey, which these brothers highlighted this morning. The Lord said, go, and they went. Respond in faith and obey. Excellent. Thank you. Keep this in mind. All right. So, 2 Samuel, some dates here for context. Just in case you, you probably, maybe you know this or not, First and Second Samuel are different books in our Bible, but it's a continuous account of David's life in Scripture. The oldest Jewish and Christian texts present the content as one single book. We break it in half um, in, mo- in modern Bibles, but it has historically been, in, in past millennia, it's been one single book. The tradition holds that the books were written by the prophets Samuel, Nathan, and Gad, and then compiled around 900 B.C., which is, as you can see, after David was dead. It was interesting here on this, on this calendar, looking at this timeline here for a moment, we can see that Israel had about one century as a unified kingdom, from the beginning of Saul's reign to the end of Solomon's reign. And about 500 years from the beginning of Saul's reign until the, the final exile of Judah to Babylon, and including, including the post-Exodus period, about one millennium as an independent Hebrew nation. So that kind of adds a little perspective when you look at the Jews and the New Testament and how strongly they felt like they had a national identity. They had a national identity for a millennia until they were captured and carried away into captivity and brought back. So a millennia-long empire, a millennia-long identity is pretty impressive, especially for the ancient world. Good to keep these things in mind as we read and absorb Scripture. So the structure of 2 Samuel picks up, like I said, from 1 Samuel. The first part is roughly divided into thirds. David's established as a king, chapters 1 through 10. Actually, it's not quite a third. It's more of a hinge point. His midlife crisis, where he succumbs to temptation and, uh, and sins. And then the truth and consequences of that 
sin and his repentance in his life, um, which takes us to uh, 2 Samuel chapters 12 through 24. It's aftermath of Saul's death. It's a hinge point. David sinned with Bathsheba, and then we get to see him live with the consequences of sin. One of the takeaways that we're going to do here in a little bit is we're going to contrast the sins of David and the sins of Saul and why they ended up, why these two men ended up so differently in their lives. So the, the beginning part, David's being established as king, the first half of 2 Samuel. Let's just go through some of the major plot points of 2 Samuel. So Saul is killed, Saul and his sons are killed, and David mourns Saul and Jonathan. And then as he mourns um, Saul and Jonathan, after that he is called by Israel, he's crowned in the city of Hebron over the southern portion of Israel only. And that kicks off the civil war with, the, with uh, Saul's remaining relatives, a, a guy named his son, Saul's son, Ishbosheth, and the commander of Saul's army, who's Abner. And then after that civil war, David is crowned the king of united Israel. I'd like to note, this, this is like, the, these are the highlights of the first part of the first part of the book. One of the things you should note if you read is David's clever and sometimes ruthless consolidation of power. And while David was mourning for Saul, the guy that actually killed Saul on the battlefield came and bragged to David, expecting that he would be rewarded. David killed him as a result of him confessing to having murdered or killed Saul on the battlefield. And Abner was killed. Uh, Abner, Saul's, Saul's commander, was killed as well. And David basically issued a curse on the man that killed Abner. Abner was very popular in Israel. And then David turned around after he, after this very popular man in Israel, Abner, was killed, and he pu very publicly mourned Abner. And through that, he basically swayed the heart of the people to himself. And then Ishbosheth, who's Saul's son, was also killed shortly thereafter, and came and reported to David, Hey, I've killed Saul's son. Aren't you happy? And he said, no, you've lifted your hand against, uh, against God's house, God's anointed. And he killed the men who killed Ishbosheth, Which is, if you think about it, all of his enemies and major competitors to power were killed, but not by him. And he was able to use that in his own consolidation of power. It's very, you compare this to the shepherd boy and what sometimes feels like somewhat innocence, um, of 1 Samuel, and you see David is definitely maturing as a man, as a king, and as a schemer, as a matter of fact. He's no longer a boy with a sling, but he's a hardened man. And he's finally king decades after having been anointed. He was a teenager, probably, when he was anointed by Samuel. He was on the run for many years. He spent many years consolidating his power, and it took many years, decades, before he went from being anointed by God and called by God and then finally being crowned as the unified king of Israel. Continuing on with the sequence, the first half of Second uh, Samuel, so the Israelites, once again, the ark is still not where it's supposed to be, and uh, David decides they're going to try to bring the ark back to where it's supposed to be. And for the second time, the Israelites get the transportation of the ark wrong. Interesting little tidbit here. This is a, 
a somewhat classic story of them transporting the ark and the ark gets jiggled and one of the people leading the procession tries to hold the ark from being falling on the ground and when he touches the ark, God kills him. His name is Uzzah. And David was upset by that. This, it's, it's, it's interesting because it's the same sort of disaster they had in the last book where they tried to transport the ark and things went wrong and they had to leave it, they had to leave it in the wrong location. But the difference, I think the difference here is David and his attitude of worship as he was with the ark being transported. It was something different that we're going to meditate on here in a little bit. It's like some of these mistakes other people made, like Saul made, and it ended up very poorly. Some of these mistakes that David made, and it ended up differently. And the, what we need to capture, what we need to walk away from, is like, what is the difference? Why did these things end up so differently for Saul and for David? Something else which was interesting that caught my eye here is when they were bringing the ark back, David was worshiping. He was, says he was singing and dancing before the Lord and just very unconsciously worshiping before the Lord. And his wife at the time, who's the daughter of Saul, her name is Micah, she ridiculed David and said, you just humiliated yourself. You're acting like a man, a king without any dignity in front, of, in front of the entire people of Israel. This is ridiculous. Act your age, essentially. And something that I noted that David said in 2 Samuel 6.22, he said, I will be more lightly esteemed than this. I will be more lightly esteemed than this. And what he was talking about, his willingness to surrender to worship of the Lord. He gave himself over to the worship of the Lord. He was focusing on God and not what he looked like to an outward appearance. It reminded me of what uh, Paul wrote, 1 Corinthians 4.10. He said, we are fools for Christ. And I think there's something there to imitate. I think it ties in part of the answer of why things were different for David than they were for Saul is because David's heart was God's. And he was unmindfully worshiping God. And he was willing to look foolish for God. And just like Paul said, we are fools for Christ. And so I think the application point there for us is to imitate David's faith, for one thing. Imitate his wholeheartedness of worship. And it looks different for different people. It looks different for different people. Sometimes you're going, people want to clap, or they want to sing, or they want to shout, or they want to dance, or they want to add some physical component to their worship. That's great. Can you do this sort of thing? Can you imitate the thing where you are focused on God in your worship and not on the people around you? I think that's the key. That's what, he, that's what he did unmindfully, and he did not mind the fact that he was ridiculed by his wife for that. He said, I will be more lightly esteemed than this, meaning you ain't seen nothing yet, or maybe even the classic, hold my beer. So... He was, willing, he was willing to give wholeheartedly out over to the Lord. So after David is settled in as king, he's established, he defeats his internal enemies, he expresses a desire to honor God with a temple. And almost as if God was waiting for this to come out, David is settled, he's at peace, he's a unified king, things are good for him, he's still got a heart for the Lord, he hasn't, made, he hasn't um, had any major screw-ups at this point, and he says, Lord, I want to build you a temple. And God says, you know what? Hold that thought. I don't need a temple. 
from you. If I needed a temple, I would have asked you for a temple. And instead, God launches from that point with a unilateral covenant with David that has eternal consequences. And we're going to read some of that scripture in a little bit. God declares a unilateral covenant to David. You're going to be king. Your descendants will be king. And as a matter of fact, I'm going to build my eternal kingdom on this. It's a very dramatic thing. I'm sure David was not necessarily expecting that, but God used the fact of David's heart. He, he accomplished his own purpose for eternity to establish he's the predecessor of Jesus as a result. And then last but not least, after, this, after he receives this covenant and acknowledges this covenant, David pacifies his external enemies. So his internal enemies are pacified. He defeats the house of Saul has a covenant with God, and his external enemies are, are pacified as well. So this is the high point of David's life. And I'd like to itch, draw a couple of contrasts here between him and Saul for in particular. Some of the positive things about David's character. One is he does not exact his own vengeance. Time after time after time in these things, he spares Saul's life. He doesn't kill Saul's descendants. He is a merciful person and get, lets God exact vengeance on his enemies. But you see that in the Psalms as well. He's, con he's asking God, and God does exact vengeance on David's enemies. He's genuinely devoted to the Lord. I mean, just seeing him charge headlong at Goliath saying, you've insulted God. Seeing him dance before the ark. These things are indicators of his genuine devotion to the Lord. And he's impulsive. And, that, and that's actually a positive and a negative. So one of the negative things is, as a note, I say he didn't have any major screw-ups, but it's like he had, this is not a positive trend, to put it this way. David had seven wives before he was crowned in Jerusalem. He was king in he Hebron for seven years. And uh, so at the time, Second uh, Samuel counts up all his wives. It's like seven wives. He's collected seven wives at least. And then it says, Scripture just stops counting after that. And then it says after he goes to Jerusalem, he adds more wives and concubines after that. So this is something that's going to come back to bite him and not necessarily a positive thing. The other thing is David and his commander, Joab in particular, it's not even time to talk about Joab. David and his commander, Joab, were wily and sometimes cruel men. There's a ruthlessness there. And that is also going to come back to bite him in his later life. And his impulsiveness, of course, cuts both ways. He's generous. He is merciful. He is stupid. He is lustful. He makes rash decisions, as we'll see through the rest of this book. The application here for us on this thing is, again, as I've said before, I'll continue to say, it's not for us to judge these men, but to learn from these men. And also to note that our strengths, I have impulsive as a strength and a weakness for him. Our strengths and our weaknesses are often founded in similar traits, in the same trait in our lives. For example, for myself, I have what I like to say a high tolerance for chaos. It can sometimes drive Shirley crazy. It can sometimes drive David crazy as well. But that's fine, because they say, I hate that idea. I'll say, that's no problem. I have 12 more. Let's talk about those instead. But the positive part of that is flexibility, enthusiasm, 
thinking about, uh, thinking about things from different angles, it's a positive thing. And you guys need to encourage that in me. The, <laughs> the, negative, thing, the negative thing is that there can be a very short attention span, there can be a difficulty with follow-through, and there can be a lack of evaluation on what the consequences are of making snap decisions. So this is, I can definitely relate to my namesake, David, in this as well. And you have similar traits. You have similar traits as well. You have something that is a strength that people love about you and something that same thing can drive them crazy if taken to the wrong extent, if it's not surrendered to the Lord. The point is we surrender our strengths to the Lord. Surrender your strengths to the Lord. Some paradoxes in David's life. David's polygamy and ruthlessness were typical for kings of that era. I'll say that again. David's polygamy and ruthlessness were typical for kings who lived 3,000 years ago. That doesn't justify their sins. doesn't say make it okay. But it is something that was like breathing the air for them back then. And like I said before, Joab is a real piece of work. I mean, as ruthless as David was, Joab was more, but he was unrestrained by God. Any, any overt description of him loving God or fearing God. It's David's heart for God that set him apart in spite of these flaws that he had. This is a paradox worth meditating on. This is a paradox worth meditating on. The fact that he was a flawed man, flawed man, and yet his heart for God set him apart. I have, a wor- I have an exercise for us. So on page two of the note sheets, Here's what I want you to meditate on. I left some extra space for you to write on. I cannot explain or justify, I'm not going to justify, and I can't necessarily explain how God was able to use David and recognize his heart for God in spite of his ruthlessness and his lustfulness. What I would like you to do is to take a moment, either now, I'll give a few seconds, or as you meditate on this message, what conclusions do you draw? When you see a flawed man that's being used by God, what what conclusions do you draw? What conclusions do you draw about David? What conclusions do you draw about God and how he interacts with us? And what conclusions do you draw about yourself, which is the most important thing we should do in any of these messages? They need to be action points for you to make this personal That's how you're going to respond in faith and obey his word. So I'm going to give you a few seconds. Make a few notes. Scribble, draw a picture. Next up in the book, Midlife Crisis. After long successes, David developed some bad habits, including laziness and indulging his lusts. He commits the sin of adultery with Bathsheba, He arranges the cruel murder of Bathsheba's husband, Uriah. And then again, he displays a soft heart before God. And when he's accused by the prophet Nathan, he repents. In fact, it's David's, I I thought of it this way, David's soft heart is what rescued him from his personal, from the personal destruction of his soul. He he encountered a lot of life difficulties as a result of this screw-up. A lot of life difficulties. But his heart for God the Lord's intervention, the Spirit of God which convicted him and allowed him and trained him to respond with humility. It rescued him from personal 
soul destruction. So I'd like to remind you, read these books that we go through them. There's so much material here. Read these books, I encourage you. One of the most beautiful psalms is Psalm 51, where David confesses. This is the psalm of David, where he confesses after having sinned with Bathsheba. David said, against you and you only have I sinned, O Lord. And he understood. He didn't sin against Uriah or Bathsheba or Nathan. He sinned against God. He, he understood that it was a personal thing, and that's what you have to do. That's what I have to do. As a result of this, David's child that came from his uh, adultery with Bathsheba died, and he takes yet another wife, Bathsheba. David is forgiven of his sins, but the consequences. God says to him, I promise you, the sword will not depart from your house. The sword will not depart from your house. So here is a, a, briefly a contrast with Saul. One of the things I, I mentioned is I want to say, why did things turn out so differently with Saul than they did for David? These two passages boil it down. So Saul, when he sinned, he, made, he, 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 sacri- he was got impatient. He didn't want to wait for Samuel. He, he performed sacrifices without waiting for Samuel. He was rebuked by Samuel for his impatience in 1 Samuel 13, 12. And Saul said, I forced myself to offer these sacrifices. I forced myself to do it. I forced myself to sin. I forced myself to be impatient. It's an excuse. We don't even need someone to interpret that. If someone, someone says, why did you eat my chocolate eclair that I was saving in the refrigerator? I forced myself to do it. Excuse. Compared to David, when he's confronted by Nathan for adultery and murder, 2 Samuel 12, 13, David said, I've sinned against the Lord. I've sinned against the Lord. He owned it, he acknowledged it, and he acknowledged that his sin was against God. Again, our, we're not allowed to judge these men. We should learn from them. When we, learn, we, see, we see Saul's mistakes and his hard-hearted response, oh my gosh, it should produce a little bit of a dry throat. It should produce a little bit of fear in my heart, in your heart. It's like, Lord, please don't let me respond like that. Please don't let me have excuses. Please don't let me evade my responsibility before you. And not that we imitate David, oh, if we sin, we can be forgiven, everything's going to be good. That's not the lesson to draw from that. Of course, it's not the lesson to draw from it. It is David knew he sinned. I sinned, and I sinned against God. That's the lesson to draw from that. So I'd like to take another moment here in the bottom of page two. Rather than judging these men or saying, thank God I'm not as stupid as they are, I'd like, to, I'd like you to take some time and write down what areas do you need to accept accountability in. It won't take long for that. But I do encourage you to take some time and reflect on your life. Can you slow down for five minutes? Can you slow down for five minutes and ask the Lord to examine your heart? Can you slow down for five minutes and ask someone who knows you and loves you, what are some areas I need to work on? And if someone points out something that's legitimate, and they're not stupid about it. So hint, if someone asks you to help them with this, don't be stupid about it. Can you acknowledge it? Can you acknowledge that there's something that you have done and something that you are accountable before God in? And then can you ask forgiveness? And then can you ask for help? This is not a theoretical. This is not a theoretical. This is one of the reasons why I want you guys to write, take your pen Write something down. 
If your heart is convicted, I praise God. Don't avoid his voice in your life. That's David's strength in spite of all his stupidity. He did not ignore God's voice in his life. I pray that I won't, avo I won't avoid his voice. I pray that you will not avoid his voice. It will be painful at first. But he offers grace and peace and forgiveness and restoration through Christ. David didn't know that it was going to be through Christ. But through faith he understood that that forgiveness was available from God. Available to us as well. Continuing along. Okay, the second half of the book. We'll move a little quicker here. It's ugly. It's long. It's ugly. Um, the second half of Samuel, things are an up and down, very bumpy roller coaster for David. There's incest and murder inside of his home. His sons are deeply involved. Rape of Tamar, the murder of his oldest son, Amnon, the rebellion of his second oldest son, Absalom. David's humiliating flight from Jerusalem. The death of Absalom during the rebellion. David and Joab successfully form a counter-revolution which kills Absalom. He puts down the house of Saul again. And Joab oversteps his authority again. He settles old feuds with the Gibeonites. And he, as he's an older man, he fights one final war with Philista and then retires from combat. The final chapters of the book show his prayer of thanksgiving. It's also in the book of Psalms, is Psalm 18. There's a recounting of David's mighty men who grew up with him as a young man all the way to an old man. And finally, the detailing of him taking the census and the plague and judgment on Israel as a result of the census. More of his impulsiveness and repentance on display again. So one of the major themes that I want to take from this there's, a, there's the, the concept of a soft heart. There's the concept of repentance, of course. But it's worth talking about the Davidic covenant. And one of the things I've given you, starting on page uh, three of the notes, on the bottom half of page three, going into the top half of page four, it's called the eternal theme. And often as a part of these messages, we talk about what the scarlet thread is and how this relates to the New Testament. And I won't take time to read these passages, but they are here printed out for you to meditate on. And the covenant that, that, um, Dave, that God makes with David, he says, I'm going to establish you as an eternal kingdom. In front, you're in, and my son is going to build a temple, and he's going to reign forever. This is repeated again and emphasized and referenced in the book of Isaiah, a passage we normally associate with Advent and Christmas. For unto us a child is born, a son is given, the government will rest upon his shoulders. He will rule with fairness and justice from the throne of his ancestor David. And then, of course, the classic passage where Jesus is talking to Pilate before his crucifixion. And Pilate's trying to figure out if Jesus is a political rebel and not getting it. And Jesus is saying, my kingdom is not of this world. So this is the scarlet thread. This Davidic covenant is the scarlet thread. This carries through from David all the way to Jesus. And yet there's more to it than this. There's more than just a fulfilled prophecy in this regard. There is what I call a golden thread. 
And if you read this passage in Revelation 19, you see Jesus as the returning righteous king and judge. And this is the fulfillment. This is the fulfillment of his kingship. This is the fulfillment of what God promised to David. And when you see a theme, it's, it's exciting to me to see a theme that goes from the Old Testament, New Testament, Old Testament prophet to Jesus, character to Jesus. These things thrill my heart and they show me, they show me how practical and real and vibrant scripture is. But then when I see something go from the Old Testament to the New Testament to eternity, like this theme does, David to Jesus, to Jesus' eternal reign, it just raises the hair on the back of my neck in excitement to see what God's plan is. I encourage you to take some time and read these passages that I put here. So why is this important? We'll conclude. Why is this important? So the thing that struck me as I was looking at all this stuff, it's easy to get lost in all of the ups and downs of David's life. The victories, the failures, the victories, the failures, the victories, the failures, the, the impulsiveness, the sin, the repentance, the victory, the good stuff, all these things. But what struck me as God was communicating the covenant to him is like this stuff is not, it's not unimportant to God, but he has a bigger plan in mind. A bigger plan in mind. And I felt like he was saying to David when David said, so I've done all this great stuff, how about if I build you a house? And God's like, you're thinking too small. You're thinking too small. So I want to encourage you. I want to exhort and remind myself as well. Can I not set aside my own limited view of the chaos and pain and even the victories of my life and look at what God is doing in eternity. And I think that's what God was saying to David. All this is great, David. You're not perfect, and all this is great, but dude, I've got a much bigger plan in mind. So I'm asking you, I'm encouraging you, I'm exhorting you, look up from your chaos. Look up from your pain. Look up even from your victories it may not last. None of David's victories lasted very long. Look up and see what God is doing in eternity. He sent his son Jesus to die on the cross. He's, he's given us a life to live, sharing the good news. He's given us a spirit to change our lives. He's promised us eternity with him. His son is going to come back and reign in glory. These things make all of my issues pale. And not that they're unimportant. But what he has got planned for me, what he has got planned for you, it is so far beyond the small things of our life. And that ought to be a refreshment to you. It ought to be something you can anchor onto when life is tough. It ought to be something that you can anchor onto to display humility if things are going good. So I would like to encourage you as a practical exercise. Set aside your pain. Set aside your chaos. Set aside your victories for a few moments, especially if they're causing you a hard time, and remind yourself of the ultimate victory that God has 
that is in spite of all that we're currently going through. Let's pray. Father, you are an amazing God. You're worthy of my worship. You're worthy of my worship. I worship you. You're holy, righteous, good, powerful, wise, giving, loving, just, holy. All these things. Lord, may I keep my eye on that. May that change my life. May that change who I am. May it change who these saints are. Change them, Lord. Give them the grace they need to endure difficult things. Give them the humility not to be proud in the spite of good things and blessings that you've given them. May their hearts just be expanded as they look at you and see what you're going to do, what you have done through your son Jesus, and what you're going to do in eternity. Lord, let that be the life, our personal lives, our family lives. Let that be the life of our congregation. In Jesus' name, amen.